Bravo here. Can say again, please. Oh, uh, here's somebody that had a problem. Friday night is family night on ABC. First join the Brady Bunch. Alice and Greg and Carol and Mike, Marsha and Jan and Cindy and Peter and Bobby and Tiger. What is it? Our house with eight bedrooms. And then spend some time with Manny and the Professor and Butch and Hal and Prudence and Waldo. What do you think about that, Dad? Well, I think that I'd rather not think about it. And then it's the Partridge family. Shirley and Keith. Uh-huh. Danny and Laurie. Uh-huh. Chris and Tracy. Uh-huh. And Reuben. You are making me a nervous wreck. Remember, Friday night is family night with Alice and Greg and Shirley and Hal and Waldo. Four persons, including two women, were shot and killed on Kent State University's campus today during renewed demonstrations involving hundreds of students. The university was ordered closed as disorders continued for more than two hours. Six other persons were reported shot in addition to those killed. The four persons were killed during a clash between students and members of the Ohio National Guard outside Taylor Hall near the University Commons, where an Army ROTC building was burned down Saturday night. Brigadier General Robert Canterbury, Assistant Adjutant General of Ohio, said the fatal shootings occurred as a group of guardsmen were moving back to the commons after dispersing several hundred students with tear gas. The order was given to return to the commons, General Canterbury said, and as the troops moved out, a crowd estimated at several hundred closed in and assaulted the guard force again with rocks and pieces of concrete. A single shot was fired, the officer added, closely followed by several other shots, these by guardsmen. Officers with the guard continued, ordered an immediate ceasefire, and continued to move to the commons where ambulances were dispatched to move the casualties. This is John Preston Smith reporting from Kent State University for WKSU News. Welcome to Rock and or Roll. I'm your reluctant host, BJ. And this is episode number 70 of the podcast. What I'm going to do over the course of the next 30 episodes is not every time, but some of the times I'm going to talk about my top 10 favorite albums for the corresponding year to the number of the episode. 
So for example, this is episode number 70. So in today's episode, I'm going to talk about my personal top 10 favorite albums as of today that were released in 1970. 1970 was obviously a transitional year. The 60s were over. 1970 saw the circus of the Manson family trial and Army officer Jeffrey McDonald blaming the vicious murders of his wife and two daughters on a similar gang of phantom hippies. When military police arrived at the McDonald home early on the morning of February 17th, they found the captain sprawled on a bedroom floor. His wife, who had been expecting a child, lay dead beside him. It was one of the most sensational murders of its time. In the early morning hours of February 17, 1970, at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, Colette McDonald, four months pregnant, and her daughters Kimberly, age five, and Kristen, age two, were savagely beaten and stabbed to death. During this attack, I suffered uh, approximately 19 stab wounds, including one which collapsed my right lung. Husband and father, Jeffrey McDonald, was severely injured as well. McDonald told a bizarre story. Three young men and a woman had attacked the family for no apparent reason. But suspicion quickly focused on Jeffrey McDonald as the killer, a handsome Princeton-educated Green Beret captain and emergency room doctor. McDonald has always said he is innocent, but he was convicted and given multiple life sentences. Number 10 on my list of my top 10 favorite albums of 1970 is the sixth album by a band out of California called Credence Clearwater Revival. CCR's first album came out in July of 1968, and within the next three years, the band would have 10 top 10 singles. Pendulum, which came out in December of 1970, was the band's second album released that year, 1970, but I like it a lot more than Cosmo's Factory. Pendulum was the last CCR record produced by John Fogarty, and the last with his brother Tom as a member of the band. Pendulum is the only CCR album to not include any cover songs. All ten songs were written by John, and essentially, even though an unfortunate album called Mardi Gras would come out in 1972, Pendulum was the last real Credence Clearwater Revival album. Pendulum reached number five on the Billboard charts and spawned two top ten singles. Have you ever seen the rain? And my favorite CCR song, Hey Tonight. Hey, 
What will happen in the evening in the forest with a weasel with a teeth that bite so sharp when you're not looking in the evening? And all the friends that you once knew and left behind, they kept you safe and so secure amongst the books and all the records of your lifetime. What will happen in the morning when the world gets so crowded that you can't look out the window in the morning? Number nine on my list of my favorite albums of 1970 is an album called Brighter Later by Nick Drake. That's spelled B-R-Y-T-E-R-L-A-Y-T-E-R. Brighter Later came out in November of 1970 and was Nick Drake's second album. Nick Drake was a 20-year-old college student when he signed with Island Records and recorded his debut, Five Leaves Left. Following the release of Five Leaves Left, Drake dropped out of college with just nine months left before he would graduate. But his discomfort with live performance or any kind of promotional activity at all kind of hindered the progress of his career. Brighter Later took even further the kitchen sink production of Five Leaves Left with lots of strings and horns, but Drake's songs were meant to be acoustic, as evidenced on his third and last album, Pink Moon, which is his master work. While the production on Brighter Later may have been inappropriate at times, even misguided, the songs are great. The album sold fewer than 3,000 copies at the time. Please tell me your second name. 
Number eight on my list is the second album for Apple Records by a band called Badfinger. Most of Badfinger's debut album, Magic Christian Music, had actually been previously released on an album when they were still calling themselves the Ivies. And that first record is still a very 60s sounding album. So in reality, in my opinion, No Dice was the first real Badfinger album, and also the first album with lead guitarist Joey Molland. The album was released in November of 1970 and peaked at number 28 on Billboard, and the first single, No Matter What, was a top 10 hit. The album also included the original version of Without You, which would be a number one hit for Harry Nilsson two years later. evening and your face when you were leaving but I guess that's just the way the story goes you always smile but in your eyes your sorrow shows yes it shows well I can't forget tomorrow when I think of all my sorrow I had you there Then I let you go And now it's only fair That I should let you know What you should know Number seven on my list of my top ten favorite albums of 1970 is the third album by Neil Young, After the Gold Rush. Young's first album was a bore and his second album, Country Rock, but he really found his sound on this, his third album, a folk rock masterpiece in my opinion. <laughs> 
It's interesting that a 1970 Rolling Stone review was very critical of the record. Quote, None of the songs here rise above the uniformly dull surface. But by 1975, the magazine was referring to the album as a masterpiece. It really is a great album with a unique sound. Don't Let It Bring You Down is my favorite song on the record. George Harrison began recording his solo debut with Phil Spector at Abbey Road Studios in May of 1970. Mixing was completed by October, and the album was released at the end of November. Upon its release, the album would sit at number one on the Billboard charts for the first seven weeks of 1971, longer than Paul McCartney's solo debut had been at number one the previous year. While technically a triple album, it's really just a double album, but a great one. What Is Life, which was a top 10 hit, is perhaps my favorite song of any of the Beatles' solo work. But let's hear another song from the record, a great song called Art of Dying.
So All Things Must Pass was number six. At number five on my list of my top ten favorite albums of 1970 is the third album by a band called Led Zeppelin. The record was recorded between January and August of 1970 and released on October 5th, and it is without a doubt my own personal favorite album by Led Zeppelin. Definitely their strongest, most consistent collection of songs. Critics and fans alike were taken aback by the dramatic shift in style toward folk music and acoustic instrumentation on the album. I guess people wanted a whole album full of whole lot of loves, but I think the songs are great. It's hilarious that many people at the time accused Led Zeppelin of ripping off Crosby, Stills, and Nash. I just don't hear it. I played several songs from this record on my Dazed and or Confused episode. But let's hear a great song from this record that I didn't play on that show, a song called Friends. Bridge Over Troubled Water is the fifth and final album by a folk duo called Simon and Garfunkel 
and number four on my list of my favorite albums of 1970. It was released in January of 1970. Following the duo's successful soundtrack to The Graduate, Art Garfunkel was cast in the film adaptation of Catch-22. So while he was off doing that, Paul Simon was writing this record. Simon and Garfunkel were in the middle of recording the album when Woodstock happened, so they turned down a chance to play the festival. Bridge Over Troubled Water would include three top ten hits. Cecilia would reach number four, The Boxer number seven, and the title track number one. The song El Condor Pasa is based on a Peruvian song which Simon thought was traditional, but was actually written by Daniel Robles, whose son Armando filed an unsuccessful lawsuit. Simon basically took a piece of Andean music and turned it into a beautiful, moving song. At number three on my list is a record called Loaded, which came out in November of 1970. It's the fourth album by the Velvet Underground and my personal favorite record by the band. It was the band's first album without John Cale and their last album with Lou Reed, who left the band before the record even came out. In fact, Reed was very critical of the final mix and claimed that the album had been edited and resequenced without his consent. Every song on the album is good, most of them great. The first side is amazing. Who Loves the Sun, Sweet Jane, Rock and Roll, Cool It Down, New Age. Great stuff. I'm going to play you a song I really love from this record, the very last song on the album, an epic tune called Oh Sweet Nothing.
Glynn's way. You're so big, he didn't dare uh, say it, you see, Jim.
The small gathering on Savile Row is only the beginning. The event is so momentous that historians may one day view it as a landmark in the decline of the British Empire. The Beatles are breaking up. myself in time of trouble mother mary comes to me speaking words of wisdom let it be and in my hour of darkness she is standing right in front of me speaking words of wisdom let it be let it be let it be let it be Hello, hello, hello. It doesn't matter about popping, Glenn. This isn't very loud, Glenn. Popping's in, man. <laughs> I'll never get Maggie May on if they go on like this. By the time the Beatles' 12th and final album, Let It Be, was released, on May 8, 1970, the band had already announced their breakup. Most of the songs on Let It Be had been recorded in January of 1969, before the Abbey Road album was recorded, and the Let It Be recording sessions were filmed for a documentary about the making of the album and the Beatles' proposed return to the live stage. These projects, album and film, did not go well, the process was fraught with turmoil. George Harrison, after separate 
heated arguments with both Paul McCartney and then John Lennon, he quit the band for a short period. Also, McCartney and Lennon were not working together as before, and McCartney assumed a sort of leadership role, while Lennon seemed more interested in hanging out with his soon-to-be wife, Yoko Ono, who was present in the studio with him at all times. Most of what would become the Abbey Road album was also tried out during these recording sessions, which were originally supposed to be for an album to be called Get Back, but that album, the Glyn Johns version, was shelved, and Phil Spector was brought in supposedly to fix it. I really love the resulting album. I think the songs are great. So Let It Be by The Beatles, number two on my list of top ten albums that came out in 1970. And now, my number one album, my personal favorite album that was released in 1970 is... Thank you. 
Lola vs. Power Man and the Money Go Round Part 1, the eighth studio album by British rockers The Kinks. This is a concept album that takes a satirical look at the music industry and its various facets, including song publishing, the unions, the press, accountants, managers, touring. It would be a mistake, a big mistake, to judge this album based on the similar sounding singles, Lola and Ape Man. The rest of the songs on the record are, for the most part, astonishingly great. The Kinks was mainly a songwriting vehicle for Ray Davies, but his brother Dave also wrote some great songs, including one of my favorite songs on this album, a haunting ballad called Strangers. Another killer song on Lola vs. Power Man and the Money Go Round Part 1 is one of the Kinks' riffiest rockers, a brilliant bludgeoner called Power Man.
So there you have it. My top 10 personal favorite albums that were released in the year of 1970. And now, to play us out. What does that mean? To play us out? I don't know what that means, to play us out. What does that mean? To end the show? Yeah. Let's hear one more song from my favorite record of 1970, the Kinks album, Lola vs. Power Man and the Money Go Round Part 1. This is a song called Get Back in the Line. Until next time. Podcast listeners, Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. 
With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. There's been a big kidnapping on the West Coast. The victim is Patricia Hurst, the daughter of newspaper executive Randolph Hearst and a granddaughter of the legendary William Randolph Hearst. Richard Threlkeld reports. Patricia Hurst is 19 and a sophomore at Berkeley. She and her fiancé were in her apartment in this building near the campus last night when a woman and two armed men burst in, beat and bound her fiancé and a neighbor, dragged Patricia down the stairs, threw her into the trunk of a car, and drove off, firing a volley of shots around the neighborhood as they left. The neighbors were terrified. Well, I heard a scream, and then I heard what were gunshots. And I looked out the window, and all I saw were the, um, the sparks of the gun going off, and I hit the floor. Did you hear the, the girl who was being taken out say anything? Well, I heard her pleading, please no, not me, or words to that effect. Today, police were digging bullets out of parked cars and windows and walls all up and down the street. They later found the empty getaway car. It had been stolen and abandoned. Police don't have an awful lot of leads, but they know this kidnapping was too well organized to be spur of the moment. Looked like a planned operation, a quick burst into the scene, the abduction of the girl, the beating of the uh, fiancé and the next-door neighbor, and left the scene just as quick as that. He is going to draw an error, and once again, a standing ovation for Henry Aaron. So the confrontation for the second time. Aaron walked in the second inning. He means the tying run at the plate now. But we'll see what Downing does. Al at the belt delivers, and he's low. Ball one. And that just adds to the pressure. The crowd booing. Downing has to ignore the sound effects and stay a professional in pitches game. One ball and no strikes. Aaron waiting. The outfield deep and straight away. Fastball is a high drive into deep left center field. Buckner goes back to the fence. It is gone. Therefore, I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. Vice President Ford will be sworn in as president at that hour in this office. Now, therefore, I, Gerald R. Ford, President of the United States, pursuant to the pardon power conferred upon me by Article 2, Section 2 of the Constitution, 
have granted and by these presents do grant a full, free, and absolute pardon unto Richard Nixon for all offenses against the United States which he, Richard Nixon, has committed or may have committed or taken part in during the period from July 20, 1969 through August 9, 1974. Welcome to Rock and or Roll. I'm your reluctant host, BJ. 1974 is the year that I was born. 1974 is also the year that Robin Zander joined Cheap Trick. Slade's best two albums were released in 1974. The first two Kiss albums were released in 1974. 1974 is the year that Bruce Springsteen wrote and recorded his signature song and masterpiece, Born to Run. Lindsey Buckingham and Stevie Nicks joined Fleetwood Mac in December of 1974. The Ramones formed in 1974. Bon Scott joined ACDC in 1974. The first Thin Lizzy album to feature the twin guitar attack of Scott Gorham and Brian Robertson, Nightlife, came out in 1974. The first UFO album, with Michael Schenker on guitar, Phenomenon, came out in 1974. 
This is episode number 74 of the podcast. So, on today's episode, I'm going to take a look at my top 10 personal favorite albums that came out in 1974. So much great rock music came out in 1974, it's difficult to make a definitive top 10 list, and I had to leave out a lot of great albums, like Wish You Were Here by Badfinger, Tasty by The Good Rats, Axe Victim by Bebop Deluxe, Secret Treaties by Blue Oyster Cult, Light of Love by T-Rex, which came out in Casablanca, Struggling Man by Jimmy Cliff, Get Your Wings, the second album by Aerosmith, the list goes on. Coming in at number 10 on my list of my top 10 personal favorite albums to be released in 1974 is the album that includes the song we heard at the beginning of the episode, a song called Calvary Cross. This record came out on Island Records in April of 1974, and it was the first album credited to Richard and Linda Thompson, an album called I Want to See the Bright Lights Tonight. What we have on this record are a couple of nice pop songs, like the title track, but mostly a series of haunting folk ballads. Fight on, fight on, over there. 
At number nine on my list is an album called Propaganda, the fourth album by a band called Sparks. Sparks formed as Half Nelson in Los Angeles in 1968. They renamed the band Sparks in 1971. After two albums for Todd Rundgren's Bearsville label, brothers Ron and Russell Mayle relocated to the United Kingdom and crashed the glam rock scene. They secured a new record deal with Island Records, and their first UK glam album, Kimono My House, came out in May of 1974, and it was a big hit. The single This Town Ain't Big Enough for the Both of Us reached number two on the UK singles chart. This set the stage for the follow-up album, Propaganda, which came out in November of 1974. Kimono My House and Propaganda are definitely a pair, two of a kind, but I like Propaganda slightly more, especially because of how much I love the first two songs, At Home At Work At Play and Reinforcements. Queen's second album, Queen 2, while it's a great record, was kind of a transitional album, and I think Queen really found themselves on their third record, an album called Sheer Heart Attack, which came out in November of 1974 and was Queen's first hit. The single Killer Queen went to number 2 in the UK and number 12 in the US, and the album was top 10 UK, top 20 US. My favorite song on the record would have to be the last song on Side One, written by guitarist Brian May, but sung brilliantly by Freddie Mercury. Great song called Now I'm Here. Now I 
Number seven on my list is the second album by Kiss, Hotter Than Hell, which was recorded in August of 1974 and released in October. The album was recorded in LA as opposed to New York City, but with the same production team of Kenny Kerner and Richie Wise. The production job on the record has been highly criticized over the years, but I don't mind it. I kind of like the way you can hear the room. Put the headphones on and you really feel like you're there in the room with the band as they're playing the songs. And the songs on the album are pretty strong, especially my favorites. Parasite, written by Ace Frehley but sung by Gene Simmons. Coming Home, which was co-written by Paul Stanley and Ace Frehley. And Mainline, a song written by Paul Stanley but sung by the band's drummer, Peter Chris.
At number six on my list is Kiss's first album, self-titled record, recorded in late 1973, but released in February of 1974, just a couple of weeks after I was born. I'm pretty tired of a lot of the album. Firehouse is a huge bore to me. Nothing to Lose is pretty formulaic. I've never really liked Cold Gin that much, and 100,000 Years is good, but kind of strange. Let Me Know is a good song, but you could tell it's one of Paul Stanley's earliest compositions. But the greatness of the best songs on this record simply cannot be denied. The opening track, Strutter, is an absolute classic. Just a great 70s rock gem. Great riffs, great hooks. It really doesn't get much better. Deuce is a real ass kicker, probably the best song Gene Simmons ever wrote. A truly inspired piece of work, and everybody loves the opening line. Get up and get your grandma out of here. And then there's the song that closes the album. Once again, a song written by Paul Stanley, but sung by Peter Chris. This is a masterpiece of songwriting, a song called Black Diamond. Out on the street for a living, pictures on the begun. Got you under their thumb. Watch the audience laugh as my head hits the floor. 
Mott the Hoople's first self-titled album came out in 1969, and their breakthrough record, All the Young Dudes, was actually the band's fifth album. After the, su- <clears throat> After the success of All the Young Dudes, Mott the Hoople released two more studio albums and their best work, a pair of killer records called Mott in 1973, and number five on my list, The Hoople, which came out in 1974. Both of these records were self-produced. The Hoople was the band's last album with frontman Ian Hunter and their highest charting record in the U.S. It's a great album. The last song, Roll Away the Stone, was a top 10 hit in the U.K., but my favorite song on the record is the first song, The Golden Age of Rock and Roll.
few people who use the expression Sweet Fanny Adams know of its origin. However, there was a time when it would have been recognised instantly, when the name Fanny Adams made sensational headlines, creating a wave of horror, revulsion and pity. It was here, in the small, quiet, urban town of Alton in Hampshire, that a vicious murder of an eight-year-old girl took place on August the 24th, 1867. Her name was Fanny Adams. Fanny, her friend Minnie Warner and seven-year-old sister Lizzie set off to play. On the way, they met a young man of respectable appearance, despite the fact that he had been drinking. The man offered Minnie and Lizzie money to buy some sweets, but he wanted Fanny to accompany him to the nearby village of Shaldon for her halfpenny. Fanny took the money, but refused to go with him. So he picked her up and carried her away. It was 1.30 in the afternoon. Minnie and Lizzie continued to play and eventually went home about five o'clock. They met their neighbour, Mrs Gardner, and told her what happened. She ran to tell Mrs Adams and the anxious women hurried towards Flood Meadow. They met the same young man returning. He admitted giving money to the girls but said that Fanny had returned to her friends. He told them he was a clerk to a local solicitor, William Clement, and his calm composure and respectability impressed the women and they allowed him to go. At 7pm, with no sign of Fanny, a search party was formed and they found the poor child's dreadfully mutilated remains in a nearby hop field. It was a sickening scene of carnage. Sergeant William Cheney arrested 29-year-old Frederick Baker at his workplace. His clothes and shoes were splattered with blood. He was carrying two small knives. During the searches at his home, Baker's diary was found, and on the 24th of August the entry read, Killed a young girl. It was a fine hot day. The defence was centred on hereditary family insanity, but the jury returned a guilty verdict after only 15 minutes. Frederick Baker was hanged before a crowd of 5,000, a large proportion of whom consisted of women, in front of Winchester's County Prison at 8am on Christmas Eve 1867. Fanny's headstone was erected by public subscription in 1874. It was renovated a few years ago and still stands in the town cemetery. It might have been our only reminder of this tragic affair had it not been for the macabre humour of British sailors. Served with tins of mutton, the latest convenient food, they declared the butchered contents must be Sweet Fanny Adams. Coming in at number four on my list, is an album called Sweet Fanny Adams by UK glam band Sweet. Sweet released two albums in the UK in 1974, Sweet Fanny Adams and Desolation Boulevard. But the UK version of Desolation Boulevard was very different from the album of the same name that was released in the US in 1975. In fact, half of the US version of Desolation Boulevard actually came from the UK album Sweet Fanny Adams, and the UK version of Desolation Boulevard isn't nearly as good 
as Sweet Fanny Adams or the U.S. version of Desolation Boulevard. Fanny Mae Gonna tell her Fanny what I heard Her boyfriend said Don't start me talking I'll tell her everything I know I'm gonna break up this signal fight Cause somebody's got to go Jack give his wife two dollars Go downtown and get some mocking Gets out on the streets Oh, George stopped her. He knocked her down and black in the eye. She gets back home, tell her husband a lie. Don't start me talking. I'll tell everything I know. I'm gonna break up this signal fight. Say, man, they tell me you think you're pretty good. Don't you know you're in my neighborhood? They tell me you're pretty fast on your feet. So I want you to meet me at the dance hall on Market Street. You hear?
At number three on my list is the second album by the New York Dolls, a record called Too Much Too Soon. This is a great album. You get four cover songs, Stranded in the Jungle, which was a hit single in 1956 for the Cadets, a song by Sonny Boy Williamson called Don't Start Me Talkin', There's Gonna Be a Showdown, which was a hit in 1969 for Archie Bell, and a song by the Coasters called Bad Detective. These four songs are turned into New York Dolls songs, and they're really great covers, a lot of fun. And then you get six originals by the Dolls, six incredibly great songs. This is just a really, really fun album all the way through. I just enjoy it so much. It's a perfect example of how great 70s rock could be. The album takes its name from the autobiography of Diana Barrymore, who was Drew Barrymore's aunt. And I have a book about the New York Dolls, which was also called Too Much Too Soon. And I wanted to read a passage from that book about the album title Too Much Too Soon and where it came from. Taking the name of their second album from actress Diana Barrymore's autobiography, which was later filmed under the same title, the dolls played into the hands of fate. Too many tragic heroines can drag a boy under, and Barrymore was a classic. Born into the famed Barrymore acting dynasty, whose performances on and off stage made the Hollywood headlines of the 30s and 40s and continues today with Drew Barrymore, Diana's life was a riches-to-rags story propelled by liquor, pills, and suicide attempts. Quote, I swallowed the pills and washed them down with whiskey, then swallowed the rest and washed them down too. Damn, I thought, I won't be able to read my obituary. Who will be at my funeral, I wonder? According to an interview with David Johansson in Circus Magazine, it wasn't suicide that finally offed Diana Barrymore, but an irate partner who rammed a tennis ball down her throat. According to Wikipedia, Diana Barrymore died from an overdose of alcohol and sleeping pills, but she was at one point married to a professional tennis player. On previous episodes of the podcast, I played my favorite songs from this record. I believe Puss in Boots is the last song on the American Glam episode, and I played Who Are the Mystery Girls on the Sophomore Slump episode. Let's hear the very last song on the record, a song called Human Being.
Cheap Trick didn't exist, then my favorite band would be Slade. The quality of the songs in Slade's catalog, mostly written by frontman Naughty Holder and bassist Jim Lee, is difficult to top. Simply amazing songwriting and musicianship. In three years between October of 1971 and October of 1974, Slade had 12 consecutive top 10 hits in the UK, and half of those were number one singles. Their album Slade, S-L-A-Y-E-D, question mark, which came out in 1972, is an incredible record, one of the greatest albums of the 70s. But Slade put out two even better albums in 1974, and they are number one and number two on my list of my top ten favorite albums released in 1974. Old New Borrowed and Blue came out in February of 74. The album was released in the U.S. as Stomp Your Hands, Clap Your Feet, Minus two songs, My Town and My Friend Stan. Old New Borrowed and Blue features some of the most insanely brilliant pop singles ever written, in my opinion. Specifically, When the Lights Are Out, Every Day, and Miles Out to Sea.
Let's hear another amazing song off of the Slate album Old, New, Borrowed, and Blue, a song called Do We Still Do It? Yeah. 
In November of 1974, Slade released the soundtrack to their upcoming feature film Flame, which would come out in January of 1975. Flame is actually a really good film, dark and funny. The movie's soundtrack is an astonishing piece of work. The songwriting is incredible, and that's why it's my favorite album released in 1974. Once again, the album contained different songs, depending on if you purchased it in the UK or the US. In the US, two non-album singles were added, Bangin' Man and Thanks for the Memory, and these two songs replaced two very poppy songs from the UK version, Summer Song and Heaven Knows. The US version is slightly better, but both versions of the record are brilliant. The opening song on In Flame, How Does It Feel, is basically as well written and produced as a pop or rock song could possibly be. It truly doesn't get any better. Searching in your own time 
Hello, I'm Gary Crowley and welcome to a special feature on your Slade in Flame DVD. Now we're now going to talk about the making of the movie and who better than to fill us in than the man himself, Noddy Holder. Nice to be here. Noddy, welcome. Let's go right back to the very beginning. Always a good place to uh, start, I find. How did all of this come about? Well, we, up until 1973, we'd really been on a crest of a wave for the first three years of the 70s with lots of hit records, lots of number one records. We'd had six number one records. And our manager, Chas Chandler, who was the bass player in The Animals, and he was also the man who discovered Jimi Hendrix and managed and produced Jimi Hendrix. He was our manager and producer. He always took the Beatles as the blueprint of our career. He always wanted us to emulate or try to emulate the sort of stages that the Beatles had gone through. So we'd had all the number one records. We'd gone straight into number one the first day of release with three records. And he saw it that the next career move for us would be a movie. Uh, we weren't actually sure about it. I mean, everybody wants to be in a movie, don't they? But I mean, we weren't actually sure that we could pull it off. None of us had ever acted before. So it was a, a bit of a weird challenge for us, but he was determined. He was sure we could pull it off. Uh, but the next thing to do was to find a script or a story that he thought we could cope with. And we didn't want to end up doing well, me particularly, didn't want to end up doing a slapstick, run-around type movie, speeded up film and all that, because I thought that's what people would expect from us, automatically. That's what they'd put Slade in that bag. That's what they'd be, a comedy sort of fast-moving slapstick type film, which I thought was defeating the object a bit of making a movie, because that had been done before with several groups had done it before. And Charles tended to agree if we could pull it off, actually acting, and find a real good story. And initially, we had a few people sent us scripts when the feelers were put out to get stories. And Chaz's assistant was a guy called John Steele, who was actually in The Animals with him. He was the drummer in The Animals. One of the ones he came up with was, uh, was a comedy, and it was a spoof on the Quatermass experiment. And it was going to be called the Quatermass Experiment. I was going to be Professor Quatermass. But Dave was going to be, Dave Hill was going to be killed in the first 15 minutes by the Triffid. So that had to go out the window because Dave wasn't going to be standing for that. So that one went to the wall. And we had a few other people sent us stuff, but nothing we really thought we could get our teeth into. I mean, we'd obviously got to do something that was based around music to pull it off. You know, we'd... That, that's the only thing, you know, we wanted, We really did want to include a lot of music in it, obviously. And um, eventually, Charles tracked down this script that had come through. He actually more or less commissioned it, really, that we'd make a film about the story of a rock and roll band. And so we, you know, we got various people to actually write treatments for us. And... The one treatment came in, which was the treatment which eventually became Flame. But when we read it, we liked the story, the basic idea of the story, but it wasn't true to life of what a band's all about. Unless you've been in a band, they tend to write about the myth of rock and roll, not, what, not the reality of rock and roll. And we wanted to show what rock and roll was really like behind the scenes, not what the fantasy out front is, you know, that everybody sees all the glitz and glamour and the parties and all that. We wanted to show the other side of the business. 
And so what, what we did, the, the, the writer of, of, of Flame was a guy called Andrew Birkin, who was the brother of Jane Birkin, you know, who'd made that rather raunchy record in the 60s. <laughs> and uh, we thought we'd take him and Richard Longcrane, who was the director, it was, it was, it actually, he was, he was the director of the film, and it was the first movie he'd ever directed. He's, he's gone on to do lots of stuff since, but it was actually his first movie, directing. And we decided to take him on a tour of America, the two of them, to show them the reality of what life was like on the road. And whilst going, travelling between gigs one-nighters, we would talk to them about our career, tell them stories about other bands' careers, and that would be assimilated into what flame the treatment that they'd sent us. So we took them to the States. I mean, they only lasted about two weeks on the road. Up, They couldn't take any more. I don't think they realised what a circus it all was. But they got enough material from us to go back and rewrite it and put it into the script. Every scene in the movie actually is true to life. Not Slade's, necessarily, but they're stories from other bands. We didn't want it to be the story of Slade. We didn't want to confuse the fans or the public with making it a rockumentary of, of them thinking that it was Slade's story. It was loosely based on Slade's story, but with lots of other band stories thrown in. Now to play us out. What does that mean? To play us out. I don't know what that means to play us out. What does that mean? To end the show? Yeah. Let's hear another song from the Slade album Slade in Flame, which was the soundtrack to their film Flame. Let's hear one of the songs that was on the UK version but not the US version. This is a song by Slade called Summer Song. Until next time.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points. 